good morning. Good to see you all on this lovely spring day. The town from which we just moved, it's snowing there this morning. So I like this. And the Gruendike train continues moving westward. Last night, my wife and middle daughter and our dog spent the night in Tulsa. Uh, and, and they have to stay at these pet-friendly hotels. So uh, they noticed last night that there were animals in just about every room. And then they find out there's a dog show going on in Tulsa. So along with all these primped and puffed animals is our mutt with one ear that goes up and the other one that goes down. So uh, we're hoping somebody grabs him and awards him a a Mr. Congeniality uh, award or something. We're in John chapter 12 this morning, verses 12 through 19. If you'd like to turn there in your Bible, uh, I will read that passage for us. John chapter 12 beginning in verse 12. Please stand as I read. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Thus far God's word. You may be seated. This morning what I want to do is delve into the the context and the details of this story at which we are looking in John chapter 12. Uh, A story that points us according to the purpose of this book, which you can find at the end of chapter 20, toward belief or greater belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and toward the kind of life that only Jesus can give kind of life, in fact, for which we are all looking. And as we do this, our perception of Jesus is going to be challenged. To to be sure, Jesus possesses great authority. We're going to see that soon enough. But, But the question is, what kind of authority does Jesus possess? Is it an authority that is shaped by your agenda Or is it an authority shaped by his own and that according to the scripture? So that's the direction in which we are headed today. On January 20th, 1981, 
Ronald Reagan was inaugurated as the 40th president of the United States. And during his inauguration ceremony, 53 American hostages were being released after 444 days of captivity at the hands of the new revolutionary Iranian government. Well, after the ceremony, uh, the uh, inauguration party retired into Statuary Hall. Uh, any of you that have toured the Capitol have walked right through the middle of Statuary Hall, and there they had lunch. And it was during that lunch that Reagan was notified that the uh, freed hostages were now beyond Iranian airspace and were entirely liberated men and women. And as soon as Reagan made that announcement, the celebrations began. Uh, That night, the only night, uh, the National Christmas Tree was lit on Inauguration Day. Uh, That evening, uh, the Empire State Building was bathed in red, white, and blue spotlights, and yellow ribbons became the national symbol of solidarity with and welcome home to those freed hostages. One week later, a carload of fellow undergraduates and I made our way to Washington, D.C. We were there to attend a couple of conferences. And around midday on the 27th, so that would have been seven days after the inauguration, I became caught up in one of the most memorable and emotional moments of my whole life. In fact, sometimes as I recount it, I get a little emotional, so I'm gonna try try to keep the brakes on here this morning. Um, As my friends and I, to the best of my recollection, were walking southwest down New York Avenue, uh, we began noticing that the uh, foot foot traffic around us began spilling off the sidewalk and out into the streets. And soon after that, it was as if it all began swelling and cresting and breaking in the direction of the White House. So now I'm being swept along by this um, literally uncontrollable current of bodies. And as I was in the midst of all this, I began hearing voices that were crying out that the recently freed American hostages were on their way to the White House. Well, finally, this (laughs) mass of humanity of which I was a part turned the corner. We're on Pennsylvania Avenue, and here come bus after bus after bus filled with these freed captives. And from that point on, it was a blur. But here's what I can remember to, to the best of my recollection. I remember widespread joy. I remember uninhibited cries of jubilation. I remember the freed hostages uh, sticking their hands, here it comes, back it off, (laughs) sticking their hands and waving wildly out of the bus windows and those alongside the buses, running alongside the buses, jumping up and extending their hands to those of the hostages. And then I recall 
uh, the buses entering that semicircular driveway on the north end of the White House. They pulled in. And instead of pulling up to the door, they kept on going. And they came back out onto the street so this adoring crowd could continue expressing this effusive outpouring of love and appreciation before finally pulling back around again into the White House grounds and up to the front door. And I was caught up in just about every last bit of that. Well, here's what Newsweek reported about that momentous welcome. The historic route was lined for 20 blocks by a lunchtime throng of more than 200,000, a crowd believed larger than the one that had hailed Ronald Reagan's inaugural day procession only seven days earlier. Many spectators waved flags and yellow ribbons and flashed V for victory signs. Then the Washington Post weighed in with the following. Thousands of citizens waving yellow ribbons and balloons cheered the former hostages through the streets of Washington as a motorcade led by Vice President Bush bore the freed Americans to a private reception by President and Mrs. Reagan in the blue room of the White House. Even in a city used to heroes and ceremony, this day was judged something extraordinary. That became clear as the motorcade swung over an Anacostia River bridge to the spontaneous whooping of sirens, the streaming arcs of water from the fireboats, and the steadily growing crowds along the sidewalks. And as the buses approached the White House along Pennsylvania Avenue, the crowds surged forward to touch the vehicles and people wept openly. It's the most emotional experience of our lives, said Mr. Bush. You could feel it build until the point that it hurt inside. It was the greatest thing I've ever seen, said the vice president. The size, the intensity, the emotion of that welcome to Washington for the freed hostages 35 years ago was very much like the welcome to Jerusalem for Jesus over 2,000 years ago on a day that we now refer to as Palm Sunday. But to appreciate the comparison between these two events, it's helpful to understand uh, a few things. First of all, Jesus was wildly popular. I mean, Jesus was really popular in his day. So popular that uh, even in the early days of his ministry, the book of Mark informs us that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Mark chapter one, verse 45. Now the book in which we find ourselves this morning, the book of John tells us what happened when these people came. Uh, In John chapter two, we see that many Jews believed in Jesus' name. Chapter four, many Samaritans believed in him. Chapter six, a large crowd was following him to the eastern shore of Galilee, which later followed him back to the western shore of Galilee. Chapter seven, many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Chapter eight, many believed in him. 
chapter 10. These are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Jesus was popular. And as the years went by, he became more and more so. But as popular as Jesus was, he was equally as controversial. Among the population at large, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews, chapter seven, verse 13. And even among his own followers, after uh, receiving a bracing challenge to discipleship, we read many disciples decided to turn back and no longer walk with him, chapter six, verse 66. Of course, Jesus' controversial statements were so upsetting to the status quo at temple at temple headquarters that the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him in chapter five, kill him in chapter seven, kill him in chapter eight, kill him in chapter 10. And by the end of the chapter, they're just trying to arrest the guy. And yet even in the midst of the fear and the controversy, there were ultimate insiders that were very much compelled by Jesus. So in chapter seven, beginning in verse 45, we read about some Jewish officers who were gripped by his words. And one Pharisee who challenged his own colleagues to examine their haste in judging Jesus. So as we come this morning to our story, uh, we can see that there are great forces at work pushing and pulling in and around the world of Jesus' ministry. And then came the tipping point. That comes in chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Those who witnessed that miracle had two responses. On the one hand, many believed. But on the other hand, there were Some, it only takes a few, there were some who went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. That's chapter 11, verses 45 and 46. To which the Pharisees had two responses. (laughs) On the one hand, you had this hand-wringing bunch of chief priests. Verse 48, everyone's gonna believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But then you have this cold-hearted clarity rising up and out of the mouth of the high priest for that year, Caiaphas, who said, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish, verses 49 and 50. So from that point, late in chapter 11, we're told three things. First of all, the Pharisees planned to kill Jesus. That's verse 53. Second, Jesus goes on the DL. He, uh, he no longer walks openly among the Jews. That's verse 54. And then in verse 57, at the Passover that year, the Pharisees gave orders that if anybody saw Jesus, they were to report that to them because they were going to arrest him. And so we come to chapter 12. And this wildly popular, wildly controversial Jesus, he steps up into the footlights. And as he does, the the tension and the triumph surrounding him come 
to a head. Uh, as for the tension, that begins rising when the Jewish leaders learn that Jesus was in town, and not only Jesus, but Lazarus, whom he had raised. And uh, seeing Lazarus was causing all sorts of people to believe in Jesus, chapter 12, verse 11. So the religious leaders decided not only were they going to arrest and kill Jesus, but they were going to kill Lazarus too. So Jesus' soon coming arrival to Jerusalem is kind of like President Kennedy's arrival in Dallas. A fateful arrival, fraught with both fanfare and this uh, latent sense of foreboding. But as for the fanfare, as for the triumph, it was as high as the tension was deep. Um, first, uh, there was a crowd uh, coming down to meet Jesus. This is a crowd that had heard about what, what he had done in the raising of Lazarus. We see that in uh, verses 12 and 18. And they took out palm branches and they were waving them as they came to meet Jesus. Now, scripturally, the palm branch is a sign of righteousness. We see that in Psalm 95, or rather 92, 12. But culturally, the palm branch was a symbol of uh, the nation of Israel, as well as a symbol of victory. So it's likely that this palm-waving crowd hoped that Jesus was their messianic liberator. It's certainly what they wanted back in chapter six, verse 14, and was the very thing from which Jesus escaped in chapter six, verse 15. But uh, now, it at least appears that Jesus is beginning to acquiesce to the desire of the masses. And when on this occasion, he did not reject their acclamation, wrote Leon Morris, well, their enthusiasm knew no bounds. Not only did this crowd wave palm branches, but they cried out again and again and again and again, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. The, the term was most familiar to them from all the different temp temple festivals to which they went, over the course of the year. Every morning, a choir would sing, and, and they would sing Psalm 113 through 118, all messianic in tone, and at the end of which, in 118.25, was the word Hosanna. And when the choir sang Hosanna, all the men and all the boys lifted up these bouquets that were made of a willow and um, uh, palms and myrtle, and they began waving them. Now, in Jesus' day, that, that term Hosanna was just a general term of acclamation, but in the scripture, it meant save us. In fact, it could even be translated save us now. And to be sure, that meaning was not lost on many of those who welcomed Jesus on that day. So you have this confluence of crowds, actually. You, you have uh, one crowd uh, who had heard what Jesus had done in raising Lazarus. You had another crowd that 
saw what he had done in raising Lazarus. That's in verse number 17. They were with him at the cemetery. They witnessed Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb. They saw Lazarus come out of the tomb. In first service, I happened to mention, some of you know this, that for over a dozen years, I worked at a mortuary in Uptown Whittier. In fact, my former boss was here uh, first service. And I asked him, I said, Phil, uh, in all the years that we've done services, have we ever walked away from the grave to have the person who's just been interred get up and out and follow us? Uh, he confirmed, uh, no, no one's ever done that, ever done that. But that happened. And these people saw it, and they couldn't believe it. And, and none of us would be able, we couldn't stop talking about it if we were there on that day. So here comes Jesus. Down the hill comes one crowd, welcoming him and all of his greatness, and up the hill with him comes another crowd, witnessing to him in all of his greatness. And as they meet, there is this profoundly epic swell. The, the scene and the size of which was very much like that crowd 35 years ago in Washington, D.C. Now, there are those who say that that first century crowd numbered somewhere around 100,000, maybe 150,000. But there are those who say it could have numbered up to a million. Uh, that's 21st century scholar Andreas Kostenberger. Some of you know Andreas. You know he's not given to hyperbole. First century scholar Flavius Josephus, who was born right after this occurred, estimated that there were, that there were 2.7 million people in that crowd. Either way, Jesus is enjoying a truly triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But as we drill down a bit further here, it's, it's time to consider the question that I asked at the outset. To be sure, Jesus possesses great authority, but what kind of authority does he have? What kind of authority did the masses perceive Jesus to have. How is it that this one who is being hailed uh, a Messiah and a monarch on Sunday will be hanging from a cross by Friday? Well, I want us to take a look at three things that reveal just how the masses truly perceived Jesus. Three things. Number one, the crowds perceived Jesus to be a political Messiah. Take a look at verse 13. They, they correctly acknowledged Jesus as Messiah because uh, those terms, he who comes and in the name of the Lord, separately and together are messianic phrases, most notably from Psalm 118, 25, and 26 that are quoted right here. But the crowd incorrectly acknowledged Jesus as a political Messiah because that attribution in, uh, in verse 13, even the king of Israel, that's not there in Psalm 118. They added that. They injected it into the text. Now it's true. Uh, the New Testament begins this way. Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, a, a political position indeed. 
But Jesus clarified to his disciples in chapter eight, you're from below, but I'm from above. Uh, You're of this world, I'm not of this world. And he further clarified to Pilate in chapter 18, and two times over at that, my kingdom is neither of nor from this world. So the masses incorrectly perceived Jesus to be a political Messiah. They also incorrectly perceived him to be a conquering Messiah. If Jesus had come into Jerusalem conquering, he would have been riding a war horse, a stallion, or he would have been marching in at the head of a conquering army. But he did neither of those things. Jesus didn't come as Israel's secretary of war. He came as their prince of peace. And he came as prince of peace self-consciously so. Because notice in chapter, or rather in verse 14, it's Jesus who finds the donkey to sit on it. The symbol of peace and humility, which was written in peace and humility. Humility, thereby fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 as the kind of king for which Israel should have been looking and longing. A peaceful king, a humble king. Interesting uh, sidebar here, the symbol of peace and humility, the donkey, later became a term of derision that was used against the Christians. Uh, They were mocked as ones who worshipped a donkey or a man in the form of a donkey or a donkey's head. Bunch of jackasses. But it originally was understood as a beast of peace and humility. So the masses incorrectly perceived Jesus to be a conquering Messiah. They also incorrectly perceived him to be a popular Messiah. And one of the key words to understanding this entire passage is found in verse number 18. Let me read verse 18 for us. The reason the crowds went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Sign. John provides crystal clear insight on what Jews were looking for when they flocked to a sign. Uh, You can turn back to chapter six, beginning in verse 28. Very helpful in understanding this matter of a sign. 628. The Jews said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? To be, cl- to be clear, what work do you perform? For example, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is, is not what, but he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread, always. Jesus said to him, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now down to verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. 
because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. You see, the signs performed by Jesus ultimately were not about those for whom they were done. Not about their comfort, not about their convenience, not for their entertainment. Rather, they were all about himself. They were all about Jesus. Jesus said, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, 1025. So at least believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father, 1038 and 1411. So the masses incorrectly perceived Jesus' identity on three counts. They uh, perceived him to be a popular Messiah, and he was not. A conquering Messiah, and he was not. A political Messiah, and he was not. Which brings us back to the original question. How do you perceive Jesus? Notice how easy it was in each case to misperceive Jesus' identity. The crowds politicized the Messiah by adding three words, King of Israel, to a single scripture and thereby misjudged the true nature of Jesus' kingdom. They militarized the Messiah, not by adding, but disregarding the scripture altogether. Zechariah chapter nine, thereby preventing them from seeing the beast on which Jesus rode as a symbol of peace as opposed to a symbol of war, which is how they saw it. And third, the crowds popularized the Messiah by failing to take Jesus on his own terms. They thought his signs were all about them, but they were really all about himself. And it's also important to uh, recognize one other thing. The Pharisees, who should have been most excited about Jesus' arrival. I mean, they were the preachers of the day. They were the ones who were looking forward to the Messiah and and proclaiming that to the people. They, They should have been excited about what they saw. They were the ones who were most exasperated by it all. In fact, in light of that sad irony, the medieval preacher Johann Wild wisely warned every pious person, that is you, and I, every pious person should tremble with fear at these examples, praying lest they be given over to a reprobate mind. Two times over in the last three weeks, I have had to buy carpet. And on both occasions, I have measured uh, the room in which the carpet was to go. And on both occasions, the companies from which we've been buying the carpet came out and remeasured that room, those rooms. And they do that as a matter of course. Because unlike horseshoes, close doesn't count when it comes to carpet. You, you can't get it right by simply eyeballing the room or stepping it off or casually laying a tape down on the floor. The standard by which the room is measured at home has got to be the same standard by which it's cut in the warehouse. Mistakes are costly. There are no refunds when it comes to carpet. 
And so it is in the way that we perceive Christ. As we commence with this Holy Week, may we be careful to measure its events according to the Scripture. That's how Jesus expressed himself there in verse 14. That's how the disciples finally understood what was being expressed on that day in verse 16. Only as we commit ourselves to understanding Christ in this way will these coming days truly strengthen our belief in him and bless us with the kind of life for which we are longing. Now, Today we have uh, looked at uh, the kind of Messiah Jesus was not. Uh, We looked at the kind of Messiah that people perceived Jesus to be. I want you to come back next Sunday and Eric Tonis is going to uh, preach for us and explain the kind of Messiah that Jesus was and is according to the scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be men and women, boys and girls, who measure our lives, measure our knowledge and understanding of you according to the Bible. So when our understanding of you and the things of you are clouded by other books that we've read, conversations we've had, maybe songs that we've sung, may we test them all according to the measure of your word because we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Build us up in our faith. Even this week we pray in Jesus' name, amen.